And he looked at me with that anger in his face and he said, are you anorexic because of me? I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Paul Flores knows how to use his voice. At 37, he's a professional auctioneer and MC, and the host of the Marvel Comics-centered podcast Power of X-Men. For years, he's been working on a memoir about his relationship with his beloved father to explore the intergenerational trauma that may have inspired their shared eating disorder and body dysmorphia. On this episode, Paul tells Aaron the story of his father's own dramatic coming of age in Castro's Cuba and subsequent escape to Miami as a young teenager. Paul lays bare the tragic events that inspired his dad's drive to provide for others even as he starves himself, and he discusses his own struggle to quell the inner voice that tells a person they're both too much and never enough. You and I have known each other for how many years? Like five or six years? I think it's been five or six years. I've known you from publishing circles. I was at HarperCollins for about two and a half years. And other places. Yeah, I was at Hachette for a couple years, and I was at Marvel. And I actually got my start in book publishing at Allison Books. And these days, you are a professional auctioneer. Did you always know you were this cunning linguist, so to speak? No, I was such a shy kid. I was a kid who walked into the classroom and everyone was chanting, faggot, 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 faggot. So people would just drop the F word to me. How old were you when it first started? Uh, 10 years old. 10 years old. So the idea that now I'm walking into rooms and I have to be the center of attention, it's a complete 180 from where I began. Let's get into your dad. We'll start there, but I'll swing back around to your confidence issues because it's a big part of the story. Your dad came over from Cuba when he was a little kid, right? You're from Miami? Yeah, so my dad grew up in Cojimar in Cuba during the 50s and the 60s. My abuelo had a club there called La Terraza. And Aaron, I wish I could, I could do a whole podcast with you about the stories of La Terraza. And Hemingway used to write there. Right. And it was this restaurant, and at nighttime it was a club, and everyone in Kohimar, which is just a couple miles outside of Havana, they would just come here and they would have a wonderful time. And there were politicians, there were gangsters, and they just had this really affluent, decadent, like 1920s life. And then Castro came to power. You know, he seized the government. That bastard. The whole, yeah. And it was taken away from my abuelo. And so one day my abuelo told my dad, we got to leave here. We're going to go to America. And I'm simplifying the, the story, but basically it caused a lot of anxiety for my dad. And my dad has a fear of water. My dad's little cousin drowned when he was, I think my dad was about seven or eight, but here's the kicker. My dad was asked to be the godfather to his cousin. So when his cousin was born, they asked him, would you be the godfather? 
And my dad at the time was like five or six, but my dad was like, this was the first time I was given such huge responsibility. Wow. And he thought this was delegated only to adults. So my dad took the responsibility of being a godfather extremely serious. So when his cousin died, it was traumatic for him. So then now flash forward to my dad being 15, 16, his dad is telling him, Hey, you see that ocean there? We're going to go, we're going to go to America. We're going to take a little boat there. And so they eventually did. And they got lost at sea. Aaron, they got lost at sea. How far is it? How many hours would it take to row on over? Yeah, I don't know how long it it should take. It's 90 miles. So in theory, you know, anyone's guess on that, especially in the the 60s, I don't know how that would have worked. But they got lost. And we're Cuban. Like you're, you're not just bringing your own family. You're bringing your tia, your your tete, <laughs> like your abuelo, everyone. Your los primos are all coming. So like the boat was like jam packed with with family, and there was a fear that the boat was going to capsize, or if they were lost, they didn't have enough food. So my dad being a 15, 16 year old, which is so hard. I don't know if you ever think about your own parents as being 15 or 16, but your brain is still cooking at 15. I mean, it's not. So my dad thought, oh, if I starve myself, then the boat won't capsize. I'm going to take weight off of the boat. Oh, there will be more food for my little sister. There'll be food for my little brother. Like I can contribute to the situation by starving Mm -hmm. myself. So that's how my dad started dealing with trauma. He would starve himself. When did you find out about this? Did he make the connection with the starving himself? No, he didn't. So my dad, when he was about 40, 41, he found out my mom was pregnant with my little brother. And at the time, you didn't have babies at 40. Now it's very common, of course. But at the time, it was still kind of, I don't want to say it was like what Tina Fey said in Bossy Pants, which was like life-changing baby. It really wasn't that extreme. But my mom definitely got a couple of head turns. And my dad had been a little bit overweight at the time. He's about 5'11", and he was probably about like 210 pounds, something like that. And my mom was like, oh my God, you're going to have a heart attack. So... He started starving himself when I was about 10 years old. It was kind of one of those things where it starts off as a diet just to lose a couple pounds, and then it transforms into like an extreme diet. In his case, it was vegetarianism, and then to flat out just starving yourself. So I would see my dad sitting at a table with other people. And of course, you're a little kid. I I saw my dad. He was so strong. I mean, despite however he looked or how much he weighed, through the lens of a, a little Paul, there was no one more powerful than my dad. And I always associated starving yourself with strength. And he would sit at the dinner table with our entire familia and he'd look at my deal and be like, you know, his brother and be like, so you're going to eat that dead animal. (laughs) You know what I mean? And like it would erupt into a joke, but like the underlying current of that joke was my dad was right. You know, my deal is eating that dead animal. My deal is in the wrong and my dad's calling him out. I didn't see the eating disorder or the anorexia. So, you know, it was only until later when I acknowledged that I had an eating disorder and I started writing about that eating disorder and where did it come from? Did I start pulling that thread because I was just so naturally curious about what is this energy inside of me that wants to starve itself? And it's funny, you're, you're depreciating your body 
of nutrients, but at the same time, you feel like you're conquering your body. It's a very curious thing. But anyway, so I, I pulled that thread and that's when I started talking to him about his upbringing and his trauma. And, you know, he has a huge fear of water. I love water. You can hang by a pool anytime. <laughs> well, you've seen me. You're not afraid of the ocean? I'm not. I'm not. I was at a bachelor party with my primo, who is the son of my dad's brother. And we were in the middle of the ocean, which is the waters between Key West and Cuba. And I dove right in. And as I was in that water, oh, have you ever dove into open water? Yes, but I never want to again. <laughs> it's scary. It's like, yeah, yeah it it's really weird. And I realized as I was drifting in that water, I was like, this is the water where my dad's pain was born. You know what I mean? This mm. is the area right here. It's so weird. But I mean, to answer your question, I, if there wasn't a pandemic, I'd be in Key West right now, jumping right into the ocean. So what does he say about his own childhood? And did he tell you stories willingly? It's funny. I have a complicated relationship with my dad, but at the same time, it's not very complicated. He's, he's a very tough soul, but he's very forthcoming with information and he has the courage of his convictions. My dad will stick by his opinions and I truly admire that. So the way we started talking about our anorexia was when I had just come back from New York. I graduated from Florida State and then I took a job at Marvel Comics. And then for whatever reason, I came home, you know, a couple months later to like visit the family. And he was screaming at my little brother because my little brother got like a B plus or something on, you know, on, on some kind of pop quiz report, whatever. And I told him, you can't talk to him like that. Like, why? Ryan was like 12, 13 at the time. And I, I still am very defensive of him. But I was particularly defensive of him. And my dad's like, have you looked in the mirror? Have you seen how horrible you look? And I was so taken aback. And he just paused. I, I was 22 at the time. And my dad still kind of treated me like a teenager. And he looked at me in the way that only a parent who is screaming at a teenager would. And he looked at me with that anger in his face. And he said, are you anorexic because of me? At the same time he was angry, he was also seeing a pattern. Yeah, I think he thought, you know, I mean, here's where I'll be like, I think my dad thought that like, oh, I'm looking up to my dad, you know, and I need to starve myself just so I can be just like my dad. But I think there was a lot more about intergenerational trauma and yeah what I inherited from him that was more than just genes or learned behavior. I do believe a lot of the trauma that was inside of him somehow got passed down to me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's interesting because you are the middle child, but you have always struck me as the oldest, even just the way that you take on a lot of the responsibility at home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's because my older sister has petty mal seizures and mm -hmm. she's differently abled. And at the time, you know, growing up, we didn't have terms or resources that you have now. I mean, my sister was called the R word. The term mentally handicapped was used yeah. throughout my entire upbringing. I didn't know she was differently abled at all. But, yeah. you know, her friends would come over and she had friends who were autistic. She had friends who had severe emotional, yeah. I don't know what the appropriate term it's is. It's like 
behavioral health issues or something. And I just played with them and I thought they were so cool. Like her friend Tessa would come in and and sniff everything in our house, you know what I mean? (laughs) And just like randomly clap, you know? And and I never thought (laughs) I, I would go around sniffing things with Tessa. I still think Tessa is so cool. You know what I mean? I'm friends with her on Facebook and she has grown up to be someone who helps other people in similar situations as herself. And I never understood that there was something different about that. And I still, if we weren't talking about it in the context of this interview, I would say there was nothing different. They were the cool older kids who came into my house and I just wanted to be part of them. So the first time I noticed there was something going on with Cindy was my dad's best friend's daughter told me, oh, how do you feel about your sister? And I go, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, your sister was born upside down. I was like, what? (laughs) That's news to me. And now I, I understand someone was telling her a story to help her understand that Cindy was different than her. Mm -hmm. And then Tessa's parents went to one of the private schools in my in my neighborhood and they gave a talk about their daughter and how they had to co- overcome so many obstacles with her and I remember just thinking like what do you mean like what's wrong with your daughter I, I talked to Cindy about it Cindy's my sister and we ended up getting into a fight she was here like oh Tessa's a bitch I hate Tessa and I'm like <laughs> and like I, I fought with Cindy about it and my dad interjected and like pulled me aside and he started crying and you can't argue with your sister. Not that my sister and I hadn't argued at that point. I, I think it was a different fight we were having. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I had just, I was no longer a kid. I was in my early teens. And I think I just, I may have been a little bit more aggressive in my diction with Cindy than probably a little kid. But to me, it was just fighting with my sister, fighting with a friend. And my dad started crying. She's never going to have friends. She's never going to understand what it's like to grow older and how you have to defend your friends. And my dad was trying to explain to me, she's not able to digest those concepts of friendship. And, and since then, I've had to, out of all my siblings, sort of take the lead on a lot of things. And you know, my parents now are approaching their 70s mm-hmm. and health issues are coming up, unfortunately. And you know how it is. It You stay awake at night thinking of it. So your dad cried. Is that when you got a little closer? No, the opposite. My teen years, I was a brat. I don't know. I guess it's like a rite of passage or something, but my dad and I did not get along. And I can't explain it to you other than I had a lot of anger inside of me. You can We can say it's about my sexuality. We can say it was about being bullied, but I did take it out at home. And if I can be team me for a second, my dad was never really the are you having trouble at school? Like, can I give you any advice? Are people bullying you kind of father? He was almost like a TV sitcom dad. And that was it. Just very two-dimensional with his parenting. Not bad parenting, by the way. I look back on it. I'm fine with how I was parented. He gave me a lot of freedom. We had really great intellectual talks. But in terms of bonding on a spiritual level. I never really got that for my dad until after I came out of the closet. And because Mm. I was initiating that relationship with him. So my teen years, 
we just fought all the time. We got so angry one day, and I'm forgetting what we fought about. He threw a basketball at me. <laughs> <laughs> at your head or just at you I, in general? I, I, I like my body. It's... Did he make contact? Yeah, he did make contact. <laughs> it didn't hurt. Because you're a little. You're little. <laughs> I'm li- yeah, I was, so, like... <laughs> yeah, I was little back then, too. It's um. So he had good aim. He had good aim, man, for someone who didn't really play basketball, but it didn't hurt. It wasn't abusive or anything. He just, he got angry and he threw the basketball at me and it, it hit my body. And I started screaming, ah! you know, I went crazy. <laughs> on it. I, I went full Merrill. Like I was going for that Oscar. Hot. But you know, that's the only instance. I think that was a breaking point. When did you come out to him? I was 16 and I had gotten a job at Pacific Sunwear. And I was in love (laughs) with my manager. (laughs) My manager, oh my God, that's a whole other saga in itself. But I was in love with like my manager. And I remember one day, like my dad was waiting outside and we were locking up the store and Kyle went up and like shook my dad's hand. And I was just like, oh my God, like my dad's definitely going to get this. But um, I came out to my mom first. We were at Burger King and she was saying something. Willow and Tara on Buffy had kind of like come out and they were lesbians. Ooh. And my mom was like, oh, I would never show that on TV. That's a sin. And I <sighs> told my mom, well, I guess I'm a sinner. She just flipped out. And at the same time, the Burger King employee was like, what do you want? I was like, oh, I just want a plain cheeseburger. My mom was like, no, you're going to try something new, like dating women, and you're going to get pickles on your burger or something like that. Wait, were you in the Burger King drive-thru when you came out to your mom? I was. I was. (laughs) I know. That is awesome. And I was really close with my mom. And I thought she was going to have a more amicable reaction. But the next day, my dad came to me. I was like, well, your mom told me that you came out to her. I'm here for you. Give me a hug. He had the best reaction. Yeah. Wow. So it's so funny. I know Cher and Chas had a similar situation where he was like, oh, I came out to my mom and I thought my mom was going to be more open about it, but it was actually Sunny who had the better reaction. And my mom, by the way, at the time, it wasn't that she was homophobic. It's just my mom never questioned the dogmas that were instilled in her from being a 50s. Is she Catholic? Yeah, she was, or still is. But And then she also was coming of age in America during the AIDS pandemic. So she thought being gay just automatically meant you're going to get AIDS. Yeah. And, you know, she just didn't know any better, sadly. And, And now, by the way, she's great. Everyone's great. She has two gay sons now, so she's good. So is my dad. My dad loves his gay, you know, son in laws. <laughs> That's nice. So you're your younger brother too. Yeah. Ryan came out when he was probably sixteen, seventeen. Did he come out to you first? Were you guys close or were you out yeah. of the house then? I was already in New York. So he was sixteen, I was about twenty six, and we were just talking and I was walking my dogs right here in the waterfront in Hoboken and he came out to me and it was great. It was easy. Ryan had no problems. Yeah. With that. I, I hope so. You know, and I'm very close with him. So your dad's a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he's kind of a high achiever. He is. He has a great business. I got to tell you. So because it's 2020 slash 2021 and live entertainment is kind of a standstill, I've been helping him around the office. 
And he's had a successful law firm for the last, like... 40 years? He just keeps going. And it's weird kind of working for him. I feel like this is like an alternate universe where I would have gone to law school and then I would be learning. From... Like, he talks to me as if I'm also an attorney. I feel like it's wish fulfillment from him. But yeah, he has lots of great clients. He knows his shit. He does not fuck around. He runs his law firm with an iron fist. And there's a lot of things happening at home. My sister, she's become really difficult. And as you would expect, because as you grow older, if you're not going to treat any mental illnesses seriously, because again, to circle back a little bit, a lot of mental illnesses were just like, get over it. In your house. In, In my house, in Miami, the general attitude has always been like, oh, you're depressed, get over it. And my sister was suffering quite a bit emotional and I want to be careful with the way I want to say it because I don't want to offend anyone but the fact of the matter is there's not a lot of education for the public at large on a situation like Cindy yeah and Cindy is very frustrated she is a 47 year old woman with Mm -hmm. you know the mental state of a 16 year old Mm -hmm. so her body is going through natural changes she's not the same girl she was back in like 1993 so she's very frustrated she's very angry she's taking medicine she has um seizures and the way it was explained to me growing up and this is the analogy i give is that her brain is constantly having like mini fireworks going off. So when you're talking to her, she'll pause and she'll like blink. And it's almost like she's rebooting. It's weird, you know, when you see it. And it's very subtle. You have to look for it. It's only something if you knew her. So she's never had a therapist. She's never been given antidepressants or other medication that would help her. You know, whatever she needs, she's never had that treatment. So she has become a raging ball of emotions. And I'm going to be honest, it's unlivable. You know, I was there at the beginning of this pandemic and she terrorized me every day. She got very violent. I had the the hose, like a pressured hose. And I was was cleaning the wall and she thought I was poisoning the backyard. And I'm like, it's just water. I mean, there may be some bleach in it because I'm trying to get the dirt off of, but my dad put this together and we're just cleaning the dirty walls because- my dad can't keep up with everything. My dad is by himself and the house right. has fallen into like a gray garden state oh, and no. there's dirt everywhere. Their like fences are broken. My husband's yanking out the weeds. I'm trying to clean the walls. You can't just scrub that out. You have to get like a water pressure to do it. And my sister just comes out screaming. First of all, in the middle of my Instagram, because I'm like, oh my God, everyone's <laughs> going to love this. Everyone on my Instagram is going to love seeing me like do this yard work. Chores, like how clever. Yeah. yeah, chores. And there's my sister in the background calling me, you fucking asshole. You're fucking trying to kill me, everything. So I have gone back to Florida, but I haven't been able to go inside the house because I can't be there. It's too much trauma. So my dad is running this business. He does not have a safety net. For as successful as he is, I was shocked to see this. He likes to live paycheck to paycheck. What do you think he spends it on? No, he doesn't spend it. He keeps the cash in the books. He gets paid and he'll only deposit money as he needs it. But his bank account is always like one little debit swipe away from being overdrawn. It's funny because he said he likes to know that he has money if he needs it. So I think it's that Cuban mentality that at any given moment, he's going to have to get up and leave (laughs) and he doesn't want to spend it. So he's like the ultimate patriarch provider rather. He has to really take care of a lot of people. 
Yeah, I've always said this to my husband. My dad is a great provider. He's not a great patriarch. Because when、mm. I think of a patriarch, I think someone who is going to be dispensing wisdom and, you know, bringing people together. My dad has a very contentious relationship with his siblings, but my dad is certainly, at least not within the last ten years, like have the entire family over. Sort of deal. I mean, even if he did, my sister wouldn't allow it. The last time I threw a big party at my parents' house, my sister had a panic attack, started writing <laughs> notes on all the doors saying "cat in here, no open door." Like that's verbatim. Despite its current state, it's a beautiful house. Like windows everywhere, you can just open it up, and you can have that Florida air come in. And my dad built this house from the ground up, and it's supposed、wow. to be reminiscent of the house he grew up in Cuba. And it's supposed to be Hemingway meets Ralph Lauren. I mean, you know, my dad is like 100 straight because he likes Ralph Lauren. <laughs> you know? To his credit, he did try. I do remember instances in my childhood where he tried to have the family together. But one on one, I can feel that patriarchal spirit within him. But in terms of like, let's bring the entire family together, it's not really his thing.、Yeah. It's more he's a great provider and. And he feels that responsibility to the point that even now with like my sister, I don't want to be her guardian. Ryan, my、yeah. brother, doesn't want to be her guardian. And I told my dad, I was like, "Well, let's just get a court-appointed, you know, guardian." And my dad's like, "Do you know how embarrassing that is? That I'm a lawyer and I can't take care of my daughter." So, oh no! You know, he has that sense of responsibility, and I appreciate that. He he does feel he needs to support the pack. So the family. Had this beautiful house in Cohimar, and eventually they moved to this ranch, and it was called like Finca Sueño, which means Dream Ranch, and that's you know eventually where they had to leave and come to Miami. And what happened was they ended up living in this two-bedroom apartment. You know the family stories are that like Hemingway used to call my abuela Muñeca. They would be out at parties every night. They had a personal driver, and now they're、really? in this new country. Yeah, and a chef, which you know I've I've heard from multiple people, and I've read obviously like Waiting for Snow in Havana that like just upper middle class, it was common to have. A chef in the house, a maid in the house, and a driver—that、mm-hmm. was all very commonplace in Cuba. It wasn't necessarily a signal of a very wealthy family, but let's just say this is how their household operated. And now they were living in a two-bedroom apartment in、uh, Shenandoah, which it wasn't the best neighborhood in my. It still isn't the best neighborhood in Miami, and back then it certainly wasn't. So it's all these like little like Florida houses and. There was a lot of frustration, and my dad one day stole a car and started driving it around the neighborhood. Didn't know how to drive correctly, and ended up <laughs> crashing into like the apartment complex, like Rosebud. And my <sighs> abuelo came out and was like screaming at him, and grabbed the newspaper and started hitting my dad with the newspaper.、No. And to give you an idea how far the family fell, my abuela came out in her rollers and started screaming. At my abuelo, saying, "Don't hit him! Don't hit him with the newspaper." My dad was like, "Yeah, my my mom is protecting me." And she see she grabs the newspaper, takes out the coupons, and says, "I don't want the coupons destroyed." And then started hitting my dad with the newspaper. <laughs> so my dad was, you know, a very problem child. So they sent him to Long Island for a summer to, Ew. to, to be with family to like rehabilitate. Debilitate and、right. all that stuff, as one does. But 
my dad appreciates his his parents very much or they're no longer with us. Was he a big exerciser? Was that part of the, you know, eating stuff or is he compulsive? In like 1992, 1993, my dad went to the Paul McCartney World Tour and Paul McCartney is his idol. My dad loves the Beatles. I'm actually named after Paul McCartney. Are you serious? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, I'm named after Paul McCartney. My dad obsessed with the Beatles. So he went to the Paul McCartney World Tour and in there Paul was talking about vegetarianism because of course with Linda and that was yeah. like their whole like that was their dogma. And so my dad went to Barnes and Noble and bought the book Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond. And for my dad, that was like, what do you mean? Like, he was on the Cuban Lawyers Association softball team, and he had noticed that he had been getting softer as he was running. And again, coupled with the fact that my mom had just gotten pregnant. So vegetarianism just was kind of like that ding, 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 ding thing for him. So he got Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond. I haven't read it. And no. He started exercising obsessively. He was just lifting weights. He was, you know, running. He he was naturally already kind of active. Like he always had horseback riding. We had a couple horses growing mm. up. Yeah, we had Mr. Bailey. We had another horse called No Name. And you were a horse girl. I was a horse girl. I, <laughs> I I fell off a lot of horses growing up. Oh, I bet. Yeah, we were in Homestead. And, and here's the other thing that like, I remember if you know the Jimmy Rice story, Jimmy Rice was this little kid who was abducted in Homestead in the Redlands of Florida, and they found his body completely cut up. Ugh. Yeah, it was it was a hard story. It was a big story in, in Miami during the 90s. That's not too far from where my dad's ranch was. So every morning, if I wanted to go with my dad, my mom would have panic attacks Ugh. about like me being going there. So my dad you know, was already doing the fit thing, but just reading Harvey Diamond's book, Paul McCartney, he started jogging. And when we moved to our new house in Pinecrest, which is another neighborhood in Miami, he would go on long jogs and I started following him on my bike. So I would be bicycling ahead or behind him as he jogged. And fun fact, now I, I'm a jogger. I'd love jogging. Yeah. And every time I go home, I jog that same exact path. He does step for step. I was talking to you one time and it was like a 20 minute conversation. And apparently the whole time you were jogging <laughs> and I had no idea. You must just like glisten. Oh no, that's sweet. I look, well, in 2020, I'm on the treadmill or if I'm, you know, somewhere safe and I can be outside, I'm basically just crying with my mask on. <laughs> like when I, <laughs> I know. That's how I kind of deal with my emotion. I deal with my emotions by jogging. If I get really excited, like this one time. I did this auction. It was at Lincoln Center and it was, I killed it. It was great. And the next day I was going to Chicago for a gig and I was just on like this incredible buzz. I couldn't get off of it. So I ended up jogging at my gym and I jogged so hard. I must've jogged like seven, eight miles that Whoa. I, I broke something inside of me and I, I was starving myself. A couple of years ago, I went through a really bad phase with anorexia and I starved myself and I ended up jogging too much. My body was exhausted and I started urinating blood. Yeah. 
It was horrible. So yeah, I, I am my father's son. I say this all the time. I am the biological summation of all of my dad's fears and anxieties. Wow. So, um, yeah, so he was a jogger. I'm a jogger. We're a big jogging fan. He doesn't jog anymore, but. So do you think the anorexic tendencies, do you think that's a reaction to panic attacks or anxiety that you're absorbing in your family? Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily, I mean, that's why I'm writing a book, Flaco, which is a Spanish word for skinny. And I think that is a really good question. That's a question I have failed to answer. I don't necessarily see anxieties of my family, to be honest with you. But mm-hmm. do I deal with my panic attacks by starving? Do I deal with the idea of people? Do I want to control how people look and perceive me? And does it manifest inside of me as anorexia? Absolutely. I still feel like that little kid who walks into a classroom who's called a faggot and that Ugh. no one likes me. No one wants to be my friend. And I overcompensate now with it. Not because I feel like I need to be the center of attention when I walk into a room, but I feel for so many years, I wasn't giving something that I was just this dumb faggot who didn't contribute anything. And now I want to contribute everything. Mm. And so I think that's where the anorexia sort of kicks in. I want to have a controlled perception on my appearance. I would wager it is how I deal with panic attacks and anxiety and and stuff like that. But again, I think my dad, I just saw him and I saw how he handled obstacles in his life. And it was always through starvation. He became stronger to me when he starved himself growing up. There's something to say that we are all like, we're at Thanksgiving dinner, the entire family's there. We're all eating And my dad is the only one not eating. Not only is he not eating, he requested a vegetarian plate. (laughs) For Cubans in the 90s, you don't do that. You know what I mean? Would everyone else be having like turkey and mashed potatoes? Yeah, absolutely. Is he still a vegetarian? No, 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 no. no. Well, when did that stop? You know, it seemingly stopped overnight. He just got very faint and fatigued one day and he almost passed out. And then he just went and like started eating a hamburger. And towards the later end of his vegetarian diet, the word anorexia had entered the house. Really? Yeah. Because he starved himself from probably from when I was 10 years old till I was about 17. So around 16, 17, my mom would just tell me things that, you know, were kind of weird. She'd just be like, you know, I don't want to have sex with your father because he's so weak and I'm afraid I'll break him. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't need to hear this. You know, they always whip it out when you're like in your teens at the most inappropriate time. I know. And you know, I feel for my mom because my mom probably wanted her gay son to be her best friend and we would be best friends. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to. Yeah, of course. I get it. I'm not, I'm not. It's fine. It's just funny. It's just at the time you're like, oh my God, that's disgusting. But But here's the thing, though, and this is something I really want to say. Even though he seemingly started eating again, anorexia does not go away. I mean, I started Mm -hmm. starving myself at at 22. I'm still suffering from anorexia. I'm 37 now. My dad now weighs less than me because he's going through another bout of anorexia as well. So it comes in waves. When I was in Miami, he eats. 
I don't know if he's just eating for the cameras, but at the beginning of the pandemic, we went down to Florida and I was still suffering pretty bad. I'm still suffering. I, I am an anorexic. It is part of my personality. So mm -hmm. I was just going through a particularly bad spot. And I was probably 129 pounds when we went down at the beginning of the pandemic. And my dad is probably about like 150, 148, you know, in terms of weight. And we're both about the same height. And again, we're talking about, this is a man who was about 220 pounds. So yeah. he's starving himself. He, you can see it. And everyone more so, it looked like my dad, but more so this time people at like Home Depot, because that's the only place you could have gone <laughs> at the beginning sure. of the pandemic would stop us and just be like, wow you guys really look alike. But Aaron, it was like people were baffled by that. And I theorize it's because, well, A, I'm a little older, but B, we're both occupying our anorexia at the same time. And the thing about anorexia that I, I've always said, it doesn't matter how much you weigh when you're anorexic, when you're starving yourself, it is in your face. And it doesn't mean you have to be completely emaciated. It's your face looks different when you want a fucking hamburger and you have denied yourself that or not even hamburger, but whatever you eat. So when did he stop? I mean, I, when did he stopped in my childhood, it was a moment where he felt faint and he thought he was having a heart attack and he started eating again, but then it came back and it came back in different ways. How do you feel about the way that they treat anorexia in this country? It seems like it's treated like an addiction if you're going to get treatment. Yeah. I don't know. Like they want you to go cold turkey. One thing I absolutely hate about the topic is that it's always gender focused. Yeah. And it's predominantly women who are associated. And it's always seen as a vanity disease. And here's the thing. It is the one mental disease with the highest mortality rate. Mm. And it is not taken seriously by a lot of people. And there are different levels of anorexia. And it's silent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's obvious. But most of the time with men, it's sort of dismissed. And the one thing I always got when I started kind of coming clean and talking about it, it was, oh, but don't men want to be strong? And you're like... <laughs> You don't get it. I think of being strong. I feel like I'm giving my body more definition and more strength. But what also isn't discussed is that anorexia is a byproduct of another issue or symptomatic of a larger issue within your psyche or a mental health issue or maybe even like a physical health. And no one ever wants to attack that underlining flaws there. And, and that's what I hope to achieve with my book, because I can't just say I wanted to starve myself because I wanted to be skinny. I can't say I wanted to starve myself because I was doing so much drugs I forgot to eat. I'm looking at anorexia as a byproduct of intergenerational trauma. I'm looking at anorexia as a way for my dad to cope with a mass exodus during a political revolution in the <laughs> 60s. How, Fair. You know, how do you... And it, it, for, for someone else, it may be something completely different. Yeah. Anorexia is a chameleon and it latches onto people and it, and it gets absorbed into your personality. And there's just not a lot out there to, to help you deal with it. It's a coping mechanism, right? Yeah. Like it, it feels good at the time yeah. or does it? Oh my God, Aaron, I have never felt more powerful than going five days without eating 
and then jumping on stage or going to the gym and running five miles, I have never felt more strong in my entire life. By the way, when I was 22 and I had first started starving myself and I moved to New York and I was going into these gay clubs because there's another layer for me, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the vanity of the gay community. And I would walk in to gym bar in Hell's Kitchen, take off my shirt, and everyone would be like, oh my God, look at that twink who's so skinny. And just like... <laughs> adore my emaciated body and i'm like yes give me that attention you love the attention people are giving you of course i was like a little i was a little kid who walked into a room being called faggot like now people are like telling me look how skinny you are you're so pretty you're so frail it's a really fucked up disease with so many layers and there's no one right answer to it and i think if you are going to write about anorexia in the context that i'm writing about it you have a moral obligation to tell the story the way it happened. I just hope that one day someone would pick up this book and read it and get empirical data from it and just be like, this is how we sort of are supposed to deal with anorexia and how to look at anorexia. And my dad is a total guanazo. You know, he he grew up, he's so machismo. It's like baked into his personality. And even he is falling susceptible to a mental disease that is typically associated with 14-year-old mall rats. And girls. And girls. But it's not that different from bodybuilders and how obsessive they are about, you know, muscles and they'll take any drug to make it look better and self-tanner. And then what women do with plastic surgery, not just women, but like the whole Kardashian brand is built on hips, tits, lips, power. (laughs) Isn't it curious? My friend, my dear friend, Jordan Younger, who does a balanced blonde, she had a book, Breaking Vegan. She has since talked about her feels on that book, so I don't want to refer to it as much. But in the book and in sort of her articles and her influence has said, we have the most complicated relationship with our bodies. Mm -hmm. And we have such a complicated relationship with how we eat, with food, with something that's so primal. Mm -hmm. And it's so instinctual to eat. And yet every single one of us wants something different from our body. And I don't know what the answer is for that, but it's something that everyone is going to eventually tackle in their life. And that was a turning moment for me when the light bulb came on was when I heard that. And I started seeing people differently now, people who have a specific diet, people who have dietary restrictions, people who go to the gym too much, people who want to look good on their wedding day. I keep thinking about people on their wedding day and how yeah. they lose so much weight. I want to get fit. And it's something that's not native to them just because they want to look good in photos and how fucked up that is. And then the next day they just go back to their, their regularly scheduled diet I'm trying to rectify that. I'm trying to find the answers to it. And I'm definitely not the person to look at it from a scientific lens, but I do want to try to understand it from an anthropology perspective. Yeah. Do you see it as just a fact of your life or are you trying to change it or is it just, it is what it is? It is what it is. I I, I don't want to sit here. I've written many articles for like Hello Giggles, for like the Huffington Post, for a lot of literary journals where I've said I've, I've come to like love my body and accept it. And, and the fact of the matter is that narrative is complete bullshit. <laughs> I, I have a very complicated relationship with my body and I'm allowing myself to feel that anxiety. I have to weigh myself probably 50 times a day. 
I really? will wake. Yeah. I, have we not talked about this before? No, I didn't know it was that often. I, it is. It is so often. And I will wake up. I will use the restroom in the morning. I will weigh myself. I'll get off. I'll weigh myself again. I'll get off. I'll weigh myself a third time because I have to have the same number come up three times on the scale. I'll take a bath. And then I worry about water soaking into my pores because you weigh a little bit more, at, <gasps> you know, because you're wet. And so I have to weigh myself then. If I eat something, I go weigh myself. I have been to friends' houses and I notice they have a scale. I will get butt naked and weigh myself in their bathroom. Oh, and no. then come up. I have done that many times. Well, it's horrible, but it's it's who I am. And yeah. I've come to appreciate that pain within me and learn from it. Obviously, it fluctuates. Like yeah. some, some years are worse. I don't, you know, we've known each other for years through publishing events. I think one time you actually did notice that I had lost a lot of weight and you said mm-hmm. something to me, you're like, wow, you know, look at you, you've lost weight. And it's because like some days, some years I can be like, okay, I'm fine gaining some weight, but I'm going to keep it at a certain cap. And then other years I'm like, you look like a fucking blimp. You need to lose all this weight and you need to keep it off and you know, mm. I think I theorize, I hypothesize it's the same with my dad, but there are two stories that come to mind. One was in about 2013, an original penguin store opened up at the mall in, in Miami, the, the mall that I grew up in. And they had models in bathing suits, like male models <laughs> in bathing suits to greet you when you walked in. And my dad looked at them and goes, no, no, I don't want to see those abs. I don't want to see those abs. And like literally put like his hands up on his like eyes and like <laughs> threw his credit card at me and walked away. And I was like, what is it here? You know what I mean? And at the time I was like, is your masculinity being called into question? Like, yeah. What was it? He felt shamed because yeah. somebody else's apps were out. Exactly. I think he yeah. couldn't rectify the idea that someone had a body like that chiseled out in public and, and maybe he never accomplished having that body. And yeah. You know, and then the next time was a couple of years ago when my dad, he had like a GI infection and Mm -hmm. he lost all like any weight he probably had during this phase of his life. And he was down to like one, like 40 again. And I got off the plane because I was in Miami and he greeted me. He goes, hijo, mira yo, soy anorexia again. You know, like son, look at me. I'm anorexic again. And I was just like, okay, so we're owning this now. (laughs) And, and we still do own this narrative. And even over the summer when I was there, he was just like, oh, you know, the anorexic father and son don't eat now and stuff like that. So it's kind of become like this weird fellowship we have and, and we understand it. It's a fascinating bond. It's like maybe you wouldn't have the anorexia or f- I don't want to say have, like yeah. it's a disease, but live with anorexia. Mm-hmm. Um Unless your father did, you know? Yeah. It's so intertwined. I don't know. Like I said, I can't imagine my soul or my body, for that matter, being divorced from him. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have this, but I certainly, when I look in the mirror, I see my dad. (laughs) Now I'm starting to see my dad. It was the first time in my life when people were stopping us a lot. And Aaron, I'm telling you, this isn't like, oh, you guys aren't like, oh, you're so cute, your father's son. People were stopping us and staring at us. And we had a mask on and everything. And people were just staring at us being like, 
oh my God, you guys look so much alike. And we're talking even like these grown men at my dad's office who are like 60 year old Cuban men who show no emotions will just stop and just be like, do you guys know how much you look alike? So, you know, the question of would I be anorexic without my dad? Well, I can't even picture myself existing without my dad. I am, I am yeah. a product of my father. I'm proud of him. I, I love everything about my dad. And of mm -hmm. course, when you look back and you're always like, oh, you know, I wish things had played out differently in my childhood, blah, blah, blah. But I understand him. I, I don't love my dad for, for who he could be. I love him for who he is. And to elucidate that point was when I was jogging over the summer, I got caught in a rainstorm and I had to go under a tree and I was just sitting down under the tree and it was like pouring rain. It was a Florida shower and I just started crying. I was crying because my, my dog of 15 years, Victorious, had passed away. I work, you know, obviously as an auctioneer and other stuff in live entertainment, all my gigs evaporated. And I, mm. I love when I tell you all the people I work with, I love and, and the adventures we were on to think that just went away. I just, I just had a moment where I was just crying yeah. and crying and I was trapped under a tree at what should have been my peak season. You know what I mean? And I'm worried about unemployment, everything. I'm just crying. And my dad's car is circling, you know, the block and he's honking at me. My dad came out to find me, took my husband's phone because we have like the tracker to find my phone. Um, <sighs> and he was able to find where I was at. And I got into the car and I was crying. And he's here like, are you crying because of Victorious? And I was like, yeah. And my dad, God love him. He couldn't give me a hug. He didn't do anything. He just patted my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> He, he patted his shoulder. shoulder. Like, there, there. But he went out to find me. He went out to find you. Yeah. So, you know, like, it's hard for me. I, I don't fault my dad for anything. I, yeah. I understand my dad. Yeah. And certainly I would never be in a situation at 15 to leave my country not speaking a lick of the language in his new country, put himself through law school, have a sister who is differently abled, two fabulous gay sons with lots of personality, and, and still persevere the way he has. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, or call us at 1 888 318 DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. <laughs>